Good morning. I'm grateful to be able to preach the word to you this morning, and I'm grateful for you coming to hear it. I was thinking as I was sitting there, if, you know, the very fact that we have a desire to, to hear the word of God is evidence that God is working in our lives, that he's called us to himself or he's calling us to ourselves. And so we are truly blessed to be able to come to the word this morning. Um, uh, our sermon this morning is from Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21, and it's on page 973 if you're using the Bible in the chairs in front of you or underneath you, I guess. Um, uh, Galatians, Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21. And I will uh, read it for us to begin. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order, that, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Please pray with me. Father, your testimonies are righteous forever. We ask that you would give us understanding this morning that we might live in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a remarkable text. This is a text where we read the account of when the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, confronted the Apostle Peter. He confronted him before the whole church in Antioch. You can see that in verse 11, right? When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Or in verse 14, he says, I said to Cephas before them all, that is, before the whole church in Antioch. Why did Paul do this? This wasn't Paul's normal practice. Most things don't warrant public confrontation. I imagine that Raymond, your pastor, will not agree with everything I say this morning, right? Right? <laughs> 
uh, or tonight in the theology talk. And, and maybe there's even something he would strongly disagree with. But I hope he doesn't stand up and say, that's wrong, <laughs> you know? Um, right? Most things don't warrant public confrontation. And this wasn't Paul's normal practice. We live in a day of division and contention, and people are confronting others publicly all the time, especially on social media, which is a public venue, right? So much of this is ungodly fighting, right, that Christians should have nothing to do with. And, And some of us are tempted to engage in this, and we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But on the other hand, we can be tempted to think that there's nothing worth confronting someone publicly on. We can be so tired of it all that we just, we just want to keep the peace. But Paul teaches us here that there are some things that are worth standing up and saying that's wrong. There are some issues that are so important they can even warrant a public confrontation in the church. And, and the issue that Paul brings up here is the most important issue. It's what he calls in verse 14, the truth of the gospel. And what we'll see in this passage this morning is that we must not reject the truth of the gospel. We must not reject the truth of the gospel. And we'll, we'll see three things. There's three paragraphs in our text. The first paragraph, we'll see the danger of hypocrisy. Uh, the second paragraph, we'll see the truth of the gospel. And the third paragraph, we'll see the life of faith. So let me ask, do you reject the truth of the gospel? Since I'm in a church this morning, my guess is that most of us would say no. But we learn in our text that we can embrace something with our lips that we reject with our lives. Even Peter, the great apostle, fell into this trap. Peter's problem here is not that he didn't believe the gospel. Peter's problem is that he began acting in a way that contradicted the truth that he did believe. Paul calls it hypocrisy. You can see that in verse 13. And this first paragraph warns us of the danger of hypocrisy. So I want to read it again, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, there's something unique in this passage to the time of this passage that we don't really deal with today. At the beginning of the church, there was a big question about whether Gentiles who came to believe in Christ had to keep the Jewish law. So, for example, did Gentiles need to be circumcised to be truly part of the people of God? Or in our passage here, did Gentiles have to keep the Jewish food laws? That's what That's what Peter was wrestling with and what Paul confronted him over in Antioch. Now, the answer to this question had been revealed by Jesus, but it took time, like a lot of things, to settle into the hearts of God's people. 
If you remember from the Gospels, Jesus in his ministry declared all foods to be clean. If you remember from Acts, Peter had had this vision of uh, 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 of unclean animals coming down from heaven, from God Himself, and He was told, He was told, eat the unclean animals, for God has made them clean. Right? It was meant to teach Him. Now the gospel is going to the other nations, right? The the unclean nations. In the Old Testament, the, these food laws were meant to keep the Jews holy and and apart from all of the idolatrous nations. You can think if you can't eat the same food with someone, it really limits your social contact, contact with them, right? <clears throat> also, we're told that the food laws were intended to teach us, Jesus told us this, they were intended to teach us that there are things that are clean and unclean to God and that, and that unclean things arise from our heart. But when Christ came, right, when Christ came and he died for our uncleanness, and then he commanded this gospel, this Jewish gospel, to go to all the nations. These food laws, we are no longer required to keep. He declared all foods to be clean. And Peter knew this. In verse 12, it says that before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. I think this means probably that he was eating unclean foods with the Gentiles. And part of the reason I say that is because verse 14, Paul says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. How's he living like a Gentile? Probably he's eating foods that normally Jewish people wouldn't eat. But then, Peter changed his tune. He began drawing back and separating himself from eating with the Gentiles. Why? Paul says it was out of fear. You can see that in verse 12, right? When, when these men from James came... He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What he probably means here is that Peter was afraid of persecution. Uh, he was afraid, perhaps, of persecution from Jews uh, from, who would see other Jews who were just flagrantly breaking the law. And so he pulled back out of fear. He stopped eating with the Gentiles, right? And, and because he was a leader in the church, he led a bunch of other people with him. You can see that here in verse, uh, verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, and even Barnabas, Paul says, acted hypocritically with him. I do think there's a warning to leaders in the church here. Right? We have to be very careful about our actions because they not only affect us, they affect other people. Those who are in authority have to realize that they're not riding a tricycle. Right? They're flying a passenger airplane. Right? We have to be that much more careful. I also think this is part of the reason that Paul was willing to confront Peter publicly. This had already become a public issue, right? uh, and, and, and so it was something that had to be dealt with publicly. Why does Paul say in verse 13 that they're acting hypocritically and in hypocrisy? I think it's because their actions didn't really match up. They didn't really line up with what they said they believed. Paul says in verse 14 that they were, they were, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter had been pressured by fear to act in a way that he knew was wrong. 
How many pressures and fears are weighing down on the church today? You can think of the fears of losing our social standing because we're out of step with the culture. Many people have fears of financial security or, or fears of security in other ways because the world is so rapidly changing. Um, sometimes we are fearful when we're confronted with sin that we, have, we as a church have, have not, have not have, have allowed to happen and not dealt with. There are many, many fears and many pressures in the world. The world is not an easy place to live, and it's not an easy place to live, especially for Christians. And there's a danger. There's a danger that we can allow these fears and pressures to lead us into hypocrisy. There's a danger that we can allow them to lead us to act in ways that are contrary to what we say we believe. If we think we're above this, remember Peter wasn't. The great apostle Peter, right? The great apostle Peter was fearful, right? The bold apostle Peter, right, was fearful, and it pressured him into hypocritical living. And so we see that Paul confronted him. Uh, Paul, I think, saw through the surface issue. The surface issue was eating with the Gentiles. But Paul saw through this and saw there was a deeper issue at play. It was the truth of the gospel. Peter's actions were not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so Paul points out this hypocrisy in verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, how can you ask Gentiles to live like Jews? Uh, My ESV has an end quote on verse 14. Probably Paul's quotation is meant to go all the way down to verse 21. So he's continuing to talk to Peter. It's hard to know because he kind of blends into talking to the Galatians. But that's my view, and, and I think it'll make sense of a lot of the text. Well, we come now to the next paragraph where Paul explains the truth of the gospel, right? The danger of hypocrisy in the first paragraph, the truth of the gospel in the second paragraph. And the way Paul explains it here is he says the truth is that God justifies sinners by faith alone. God justifies sinners by faith alone. And we'll we'll see that in verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Notice the threefold repetition in these two verses, right? Three times, Paul says, we're not justified by works of the law. Three times, he says, we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Clearly, this was an important point that he wanted to emphasize. So what does it mean? What does it mean that a person is not justified by works of the law? I think one clue to the meaning of Paul's statement is that he's alluding to Psalm 143 too. And there it says, David says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous or justified before you. In this psalm, David pleads to the Lord for mercy. He says, God, don't enter into judgment with me, because he recognizes that as a human being, none of us is righteous before God. And so none of us can be justified by keeping God's law. 
do we believe this? Do you believe this? If God were to enter into judgment with you, the God who created you and knows you, knows everything about you, do you think he would consider you righteous? Would you be justified or would you be condemned? Right? Some of us are more righteous than others, right? Some of us in here perhaps have lived notoriously sinful lives. And other us, others of us have lived pretty good lives, right? In comparison with one another, we're a pretty righteous person. But in comparison with God, none of us is righteous. We're sinners. I think this is something that the early Jewish Christians had to wrestle with when they began to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to all the other nations. In comparison with the Gentiles, uh, who were notorious sinners, the Jews were pretty good, right? They were the covenant people of God. They had been given direction by God in His law. The Gentiles were outside of the covenant, clueless, living in sin. You see that in verse 15 when Paul says, we ourselves, that is, we, me and you, Peter, right? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In comparison with the Gentiles, Peter and Paul were pretty righteous. They were clean. But that doesn't mean they were clean and righteous before God. That's what Paul says in the next verse. He says, yet, right? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. What are these works of the law? I think they certainly include the ceremonial works, like the food laws that Peter was dealing with, but they also include moral works, like the famous Ten Commandments. These are the things that would make you righteous. But Paul says, no one's righteous by works of the law. No one is righteous by keeping God's law. Rather, he says, We're only justified, we're only righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Jesus entered the world to save us from our unrighteousness. He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. And he summons everyone to faith in him. Do you remember what he said? Do you know he said this? He said, repent and believe the gospel. Isn't he saying, come to know that you cannot be justified by works of the law and come to believe in me instead? Have you repented and believed in the Son of God? This is how you can be justified before God. And Paul says that's why even he and Peter had come to believe in Christ, right? In the middle of the verse, we also, along with the Gentiles, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified, right? Three times, right? Not by works of the law, not by works of the law, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, believing in Christ Jesus, by faith in Christ. This is the truth of the gospel, Paul says. God justifies sinners by faith alone. So what does it mean to believe in Christ? What does it mean for Christ to be the object of our faith? Does it, does it mean to believe that Jesus existed as a historical person? Clearly, it means more than that. That's part of it, right? 
But clearly it means more than this, right? In this context, I think it means to know, right? Paul says in verse 16, we know. It's to know that I cannot be justified by my own keeping of God's law, but only through what Christ has accomplished for me on the cross. To believe in Christ is to rest all of my hope on his death for my sins and on his resurrection for my life. It's to know that when I stand before God in judgment, my righteousness, my justification, my acceptance before him consists entirely and only in the fact that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. One thing I'd note here is that there's only one prerequisite for believing in Christ, right? And Paul says it's knowing that you cannot be justified by works of the law. Right? We know this, right? It's, it's knowing, in other words, that you're a sinner. It's repentance, like Jesus said. So you don't have to grow up in the church or a Christian family to believe in Jesus Christ. You could live, you could live a, that, that my, I thought of the song we were singing, the, I, I'm going to mess it up, all right? Uh, but like about the vile sinner or something like that. Only in church do you sing those kinds of words, right? The, um, that moment in Jesus, a pardon receives, right, when he believes it. I really messed it up. But you know what I'm saying, all right? Um, right? You don't have to grow up in church. Right? Um, you don't have to have a great testimony that I was in the world and, and then God graciously saved me and brought him to myself. You could grow up in church and live a pretty good life, right? The only thing you have to know is that you're a sinner. That's the only prerequisite. Um, you don't have to be a Jew, right, Paul says. Uh, but again, you don't have to be a Gentile. You don't have to be white. You don't have to be a person of color. You don't have to be rich, but you don't have to be poor. Right? All you have to do is know that you're a sinner and come to believe in Christ. You don't have to be grown up. You can be a kid. And if, all you have to do is know you're a sinner and come to believe in Christ. On the other hand, you don't have to be young. Right? You, you could live a life totally against God right? and come to the end of your life and recognize I'm a sinner, and believe in Christ, and be saved, right? This is the truth of the gospel. God justifies sinners by faith in Christ alone, not by works of the law. And many of us in here know this truth, right? Many of us in here know this truth. Evangelical Protestants are so good at emphasizing that salvation is by faith alone. But sometimes we become too familiar with it. We think it is an obvious or an easy thing. We have to listen to Martin Luther's warning. He warns us against this, quote, supposing that the doctrine of faith is an easy matter. It is indeed easy to talk about, but it's hard to grasp. It's easily obscured and lost. Therefore, let us with all diligence and humility devote ourselves to the study of sacred scripture and to serious prayer lest we lose the truth of the gospel. Well, this leads us to our final paragraph here, which tells us more about the life of faith. So we've got, we see the danger of hypocrisy, we see the truth of the gospel, and then we see the life of faith. Uh, and I'll read verses 17 to 21. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here Paul warns us about going back to the law, against kind of rebuilding the law as a means of our justification before God. Instead, Paul says, we must live the life of faith. Right? It's not like we come to faith in the beginning and then we live by the law. No, we, we live the life of faith beginning to end. Now, these verses, when you think about them, are actually a little obscure. Uh, some of the statements Paul makes are very short and hard to understand. So there's a lot of debate about what they mean in the commentaries. I'm just going to explain to you my understanding. If you're very interested, you can go and read a commentary by Doug Moo or Tom Schreiner on these and, and, and read more. Um, so here's my understanding. Verse 17 says, I think that when we come to Christ and, and we endeavor to be justified in Christ, right, we're found to be sinners. Right? What does the cross tell us? When we look at the cross, it tells us we are sinners. Right? We need to be forgiven. That's why Christ died for our sins. Peter, Paul, all of us, just like the Gentiles, were sinners, right? This does not mean, however, that Christ makes us sinners. And I think that's what Paul probably means when he says, is Christ a servant of sin? Is, is he, does he promote sin? And Paul says, no, right? No, he doesn't, right? It's actually the law, uh, the law itself that points out and promotes sin, right? Um, so the law says... Do you know this commandment? You shall not covet. And in doing that, it exposes all of our unrighteous desires. It increases our desires even. Right? Uh, it, it hangs a sign, the law hangs a sign around our neck that says, sinner. So it's not Christ that promotes sin. It's actually the law that promotes sin. That's why Paul says in verse 18 that we shouldn't rebuild the law. Right? He says, if I rebuild what I tear down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Because that's what the law does. It proves us to be transgressors. So Paul says, we shouldn't rebuild it. Right? We shouldn't rebuild it. That's what Peter was doing. Right? Peter, in a sense, he knew. He knew Christ had come. He knew, he, he knew the cross. He had come to believe in Christ. But then he was rebuilding the law. Right? Not, not, not eating with the Gentiles. Trying to keep the law again. Um, so we can't rebuild the law. The law, Paul says, has been torn down. And, and I think in the following verses, we're going to understand a little bit more what that means. What does it mean that the law has been torn down and that we shouldn't rebuild it? And one thing I want to note is that notice how much Paul uses the word I in these verses. Uh, it starts in 18, if I rebuild, and then it goes all the way to 21, I. I think Paul's talking about his own experience as a believer, and his own experience is kind of a paradigm for all, everyone else. Uh, so, so I'm going to use the word we because I think it applies to every believer, but uh, that's, that's why I think Paul uses the word I. So in verse 20, Paul says that we have been crucified with Christ, and we no longer live, but Christ lives on, in us by his Spirit. This is the life of faith. We have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Remember, Zabias. 
Christ was crucified, all right? Christ was crucified, and that means that he really died, right? He really died, right? When they, they took him down from the cross and tried to carry him, he was dead weight, right? He was dead. He really died. And Paul says that when he died, believers died with him. I died with him. We died with him. And some, a real change has taken place, right? Theologians call this union with Christ. We're, we're united with Christ, like in a marriage. And what happens to him happens to us, right? When he died, we died. When he lived, came to life, we came to life with him. But I still seem alive, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, what, what could it mean, I died? You know, it's... When, when I say Christ died, that's pretty obvious, right? But what does it mean that I died? Um, well, it means a lot. Uh, but one thing I think it means in this passage is that the death of Christ has resulted in a change and a separation from the law. Right? When a death occurs, separation occurs, right? That's, that's the great sorrow of death, right? When a loved one dies, they're no longer with us right? There's a separation. But in some cases, this actually can be the great joy of death, right? When, when a terrible, oppressive person dies, they're no longer with us, right? Praise God, right? And what Paul's saying here is, verse 19, he says, we have died to the law. We have died to the law. That is, we don't have a relationship with the law anymore in one sense, right? The law is the thing that points out our sin and condemns us, right, as sinners before God. But now in Christ, Paul says, we have died to the law. Right? The law no longer condemns us. Instead, instead, Christ lives in us by His Spirit. We live with Christ, and the Spirit of God enables us to obey Him. How do we how do we live the life of a Christian? It's not through the law, right? That doesn't mean the law doesn't teach us anything. It does, right? But it's by the Spirit, right? Christ gives us His Spirit. Christ Himself comes to live in us by faith and enables us to obey God, right? <clears throat> we live the life of faith. We live the life of faith by the Spirit of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we no longer struggle with sin as Christians, right? Um, it, there's a sense in which we've died with Christ, right? And yet we still struggle with sin. I think you see that in verse 20. Paul says, Paul says, he speaks of the life I now live in the flesh. Uh, we, we all continue to live a life in the flesh, right? We continue to be mortals, right? We continue to be weak men and women slogging our way through the world in fleshly bodies, but we have a Savior in heaven who loved us, right? We, we believe in the Son of God who died for our sins and who's risen from the dead. And every day, right, we look to Him again in faith. This is the life of faith, right? We live this life in the flesh, but we look to Him again in faith. We remember He loved us. He gave Himself for us. He died for us. We've died with Him. He's raised we're raised with him, and he promises to raise us in the end, right? He's coming again. We live the life of faith. 
One thing I want to notice here is that Paul's faith in verse 20 is very personal, right? He says, he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? He doesn't just say he loved us and he gave himself for us. This, this is what it means to believe in Jesus. It's to come to know that he loved me, that on the cross, that he gave himself for me. You see, Christ loves us not just as a group, he does as a group, right, but as individuals. The great preacher Chrysostom said, this language that Paul uses teaches us that each individual owes a great deal of gratitude to God as if he had come for my sake alone. The commentator Tom Schreiner says that our faith in Christ can only be sustained when we are confident of God's love. We have to be able to say, to live the life of faith, we have to be able to say, not just I believe in, in the Son of God, but I believe that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Well, <clears throat> we must not rebuild the law, right? And, and verse 21, I think, verse 21 reinforces this when Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, right? If we rebuild the law, Paul says, we nullify the grace of God. If we rebuild the law, he says, we reject the grace of God. We reject the thing that he's torn down. I want to use an illustration here. Um, for, many, for many years, especially as a student, I drove cars that were all beaters, all right? Uh, so, I'll use that as an illustration. Um, imagine today that you drive a beater, and I know there's some students here, so some of you don't have to imagine very hard, I imagine, okay? So um, imagine, though, that you drive a beater, okay? So it's a piece of junk. Uh, it's rusted out. It doesn't always start. It leaves you stranded, speaking from experience here, all right? Um, you can't rely on it, and you don't want to fix anything in it because... Something else is just going to break. Why put money into this, right? Now, imagine that you have a friend who owns a BMW dealership, right? And they take you to the dealership, and they say, you know what? Take any car on the lot. Just pick the car. When you're ready, come to me, and I'll get you the keys, right? What would you do? What if you said, okay, you know, I'll take the new car, but I'd really like to keep driving my old car as well, right? No, no one would do that, right? You'd dump the old car as soon as you can, right? And you'd drive away in that new BMW, right? If you wanted to keep the old car, that would really be to reject the gift, right? To reject the gift that your friend is giving you. No one would do that. Why do we do that in our Christian life, right? Why do we, why do we accept the gift but say, ah, I want to keep holding on to the old life, the life of the law, right? Paul says, don't reject the gift. Christ is our friend, right? And Christ has given us so much more than a BMW, all right? He's given to us everything, right? He's given to us life itself. And, but sometimes we are tempted to rebuild the law like Peter, right? We can ask, we can rebuild it for others, right? We can ask others to live up to standards that we can't keep ourselves, I think of how much like, self-righteous indignation is in our culture right now, 
What is this doing? If we as Christians embrace that, we're rebuilding the law. Do we not forget that we're all children of Adam? That we all partake in the same weakness? We, we, can, um, we can rebuild the law for ourselves, uh, asking ourselves to live up to an impossible standard. Do we forget that God has forgiven all of our sins in Christ? I think worse, we can rebuild the law by deceiving ourselves and our pride, you know, saying, I'm a pretty good Christian person, right? Uh, I mean, what is that but rebuilding the law, acting as if our justification is by what we do and not by Christ? So let's not do this. Let's not nullify the grace of God. Let's not reject the truth of the gospel, either for ourselves or for others. Let's embrace the grace of God by embracing the crucified Christ alone for our justification and and not our works for our justification. Let's show the grace of God to others by forgiving and accepting others. Let's root out all hypocrisy in our lives and bring our conduct into step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel is that God justifies sinners by faith alone. Let's be willing to stand up for this truth like Paul was. And let's live a life of faith in God's Son every day until our faith becomes sight. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel, for sending your Son into the world to deliver us from our sins. Thank you for this word uh, that we are able to hear today. Pray that you would help us to hear it and obey it. We ask this in Christ's name.